Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast where we interview authors of influential and interesting books in the field. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your hostess, Annie Sepukaya, and this week we are interviewing Stephanie Coates, a professor of history and family studies at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. She is also the co-chair and director of public education at the Council on Contemporary Families. Her most recent book is A Strange Stirring, The Feminine Mystique and American Women at the Dawn of the 1960s, published by Basic Books in 2011. But today, we will actually be talking to her about an older book called The Way We Never Were, American Families and the Nostalgia Trap, also published by Basic Books. Now, this isn't really a new book. The first edition came out in 1992, and it was republished in 2000 with a new introduction. But I chose it for the podcast because it provides such a succinct history of the changes of the American family and the myths that we often take for granted as being true about the so-called good old days. So perhaps just for today, we should call it the Relatively New Books in Sociology podcast. But in reality, this is a very timely issue, as we are still constantly bombarded by images and stories of either idyllic or nightmarish families often with the implication that things were better in the past and that modernity has brought on family deterioration. In this book, Stephanie Kuntz outlines these myths and carefully destroys each one of them, while providing a more balanced and accurate depiction of what families were actually like in the glorious past that we have so idealized. She also provides a more realistic framework of the issues that modern families face today. Good morning, Stephanie. Good morning. We are talking today about your book, The Way We Never Were, American Families and the Nostalgia Trap. Um, tell me, um, what is the nostalgia trap and what, why is it a problem in our society? Well, there is a tendency to look back at the past and think that things were rosier then. The more I study family history, the more I am respectful of the sort of things that that first tend to trigger nostalgia, that people look around uh, at what's going on in the present and they they don't like it. They see things that are unfair or things that that seem wrong to them. Um, And without the tools to understand where those things came from or how they could be changed, in the future, unfortunately, they tend to look backwards and to idealize the past. If we could just get back to that, things would be better. Um, but I think, so I've come to think of nostalgia as a misplaced critique of the present and desire for change. Unfortunately, a lot of the mass media and um, people with a stake uh, in the, a vested interest in the status quo tend to encourage that nostalgia because that uh, the solution, if it's nostalgia, is to turn the clock back rather than try to adjust to changing family life. 
Mm, I see. Yeah. Um, so you think that, I mean, why do you think it's such a, a persistent problem? You think the media is involved. Um, are there any other possible reasons? Well, you know, I'm not one for, much for saying that there's such a thing as human nature. I think uh, <laughs> human beings are very pliable, but I do think it is a tendency that you see throughout history. My gosh, back in the Roman Empire, uh, they were looking back to the good old days when wives uh, spent more time at the uh, at the distaff, and the colonial Americans no sooner got off the boat than they were, uh, you know, complaining about the rising generation. So I do think there's a certain amount of that built into the way human beings process their memories um, but I think it's very much um, very much encouraged by the mass media and particularly the kind of nostalgia for the 1950s uh, and 1960s um, because that was a time period just at that period was when the mass media came of age and you began to see a really common audience it was before the fragmentation of today there were like three networks that people watched so everybody was watching these kind of same shows. And over the years, even though the people who watched them at the time realized that the family life portrayed in Leave it to Beaver and Ozzie and Harriet had really nothing to do with what they had experienced just coming out of the Depression and World War II, it was what they would have liked to experience. And then their kids grew up thinking that was the traditional family. <laughs> so it's been a particular problem with the 1950s family. So it creates this sort of false memory. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also talk about the 1950s as being a rather unusual decade, even though we always think of it as when things were traditional and that before the 50s, everything was like it was in the 50s. Um, but you said that's actually not true. Well, it was arguably the least traditional decade in all of American history, barring you know extreme uh, events like revolution and civil war. Um, for example, many people think that the male breadwinner family is traditional. Actually, throughout most of history, for thousands of years, women uh, brought home the bacon just as much as men did. But first of all, of course, they raised it on the farm, slaughtered it, um, and then the women cured it and usually took it to market. There was no concept that there was such a thing as a male provider family. Uh, men and women worked together in farms or small businesses. And in fact, um, some of my other books talk about the development of marriage, which was not based on love, but uh, on expanding the family labor force. So it's really not until the 19th century that we get this idea that men and women have qualitatively different natures. And it's an interesting idea because when, when I say that through most of history, women were co-providers for their families, that did not give them equal say in their family. And in fact, in most of European history and, and elsewhere around the world, men own the product of women's labor. Um, mm. Uh, you know the old, the old, the lovely old wedding vow. You know where the guy says, "With all my worldly goods, I thee endow." Well, actually, that should have been said by the woman because upon marriage, he took ownership of her dowry, her uh, inheritance, uh, her jewels, even anything she earned within marriage. So, women were not equal in this, but they were not seen as qualitatively different. What happens in the 19th century is very interesting. Uh, women and men's roles are redefined. So that now the argument is, well, no, there's no, the, we don't have this old style patriarchy where men just boss women around. It's just that men and women do different things. 
and mm-hmm. women who had formerly been seen as shrewd in business and actually the lusty sex more prone to sexual error than men, and men who had been encouraged to uh, participate in kin-keeping and to show their emotions and uh, to do things like arrange weddings for the in the community. Suddenly, men were defined as the instrumental, the provider, and women as the, um, the nurturer. However... In most families, you still did not have a single breadwinner. Uh, if a woman wasn't working beside her husband, then her children were going out to work. It wasn't until the 1920s that a bare majority of kids grew up in a male breadwinner family uh, where their wife was uh, was not working and they were not working but were in school. That form of form receded in the 30s and 40s. It roared back in the 50s uh, and early 60s, but only lasted about 18 years. So it's really very non-traditional. So there are all sorts of other things about um, the 1950s that were non-traditional. And in fact, uh, the more I study it, the more I can understand a certain nostalgia for the economic of the time if you were white. Now, let me say this did not apply to blacks. But if you were white men, uh, this was a period for the first time, really, where the income gap was closing, where real wages were falling even faster for the bottom 20% of earners than they were for the top. and by the end of the 50s, a 30-year-old man could, the average 30-year-old man could buy a median-priced home on 15 to 18 percent of his uh, uh, salary, which is, of course, unheard of today. Mm-hmm. And so there was this economic, there was this huge economic uh, boost that was very atypical. It was the post-war prosperity combined with much more government um investment in social programs and job creation than we see today. Um, The problem, of course, when you look back and and want to get nostalgic about it, is that blacks were left out of this and women were left out of it. I just finished a new book on women in in the 1960s and their marriages and all these women who rushed into marriage. Well, that was the only way they could participate in the expanding consumer economy. Their wages were flat. Uh, there were very little options for women who wanted to work outside the home, certainly for anything more than a small amount of time. So you had women having to get married and having to stay married. Mm, right. Yeah. Um, you talked about how in the 1950s there was an expansion of social programs, and that's part of the reason why um, we think of it as a nostalgic time in terms of it, you know, people having a better financial um, situation. Um, you also said... I'm sorry, go on. You go. You go. No, um, you you said that um, that because of this, there's this sort of um, myth of self-reliance that people don't realize how much, um, you know, government uh, programs actually helped families during that time. Could you talk a little bit about that? Exactly. Um, there, this was a time period when um, government was helping us in so many different ways. Um, first of all, the investment in infrastructure, um, like highway building, um, factories, school building, which creates jobs, was going on at a rate three and a half times what we see today. Uh, the federal highway program under Eisenhower, a total federal program that created all sorts of new jobs for working class Americans and opened up suburbia to middle class Americans. Meanwhile, all of the inventions that the government had financed during World War II, prefabricated housing, all the things that made so many consumer goods and including homes available for the first time uh, to people had been financed by government research but were turned over to private industry which was then able to sell them at a lower cost.
else than it would have been without such uh, government industry. Plus, of course, you had um, an incredible number of young men because of the draft. Um, only 2% of veterans were women, so uh, that's why I say young men, uh, who were eligible for veterans' benefits. And they were quite generous. They paid the uh, they paid an allowance uh, every month, but they also paid the tuition, no matter how high the tuition. And, um, of course, you had the new Fannie Mae and Ginnie Mae uh, institutions that um, reorganized the private banking industry so that they accepted lower down payments and longer uh, payoffs to make homes available, and some even offered a dollar down for veterans. So it was a time of, of tremendous investment in job creation and in the social kinds of um, uh, stage on which people could begin to pull themselves up, not by their own bootstraps, but but having a stepping stone to get up. Now, of course, the big problem is that if you were African American or Chicano or Native American, you were left out of that. Women were not included in it. And um, the other problem was that this was a good time to be a white working class or middle class family if everything was going well in your family. But if it wasn't, if there was alcoholism or domestic violence, which was stunningly, I mean, just let's come back to that, how non-seriously it was taken. There was no such thing as marital rape. Uh, divorce was still fault-based divorce. You had to prove that not only had your spouse done something egregiously wrong, which was easier to prove against women than men, by the way, but that you came to court the way the uh, judges put it, with clean hands. So if there was something wrong in your family, uh, there was nowhere to go because these things were systematically swept under the rug. So that's mm. why you don't really want to be nostalgic for that period. Right. It's not as great as it was cracked up to be. Um can you tell us why um, this um, there's a myth um, today of parental omnipotence or the or a feeling that you know that the sort of break between um, you know your emotional life being um, sort of relegated to the home um, and how that was different before? Well. Um, this, I'm not sure what you mean by omnipotence because I, it seems to me that um, most parents feel terribly out of touch and frightened by the new world that their kids are entering, both the technology, the new sexual mores, um, <laughs> the availability of, of things like pornography on the net, uh, and, of course, the um, falling opportunity uh, to succeed in traditional middle-class occupations, what many economists have called the hollowing out of the job and income structure. And so I think what happens is that parents have, especially middle-class, college-educated parents, uh, have become increasingly frantic about uh, overseeing their kids, preventing them from falling off and um, out and down from the middle class. Um, and this is actually much more intense than it was in the 50s. Um, in some ways, it's, it's um, you know, of course, good to be concerned about your kids' development. More people read to their kids. Uh, we're much more uh, conscious about um, accidents, and, and the accident rate has gone way down since the 1950s. Uh, we've solved many of the um, medical problems that used to be, be an issue for kids. Uh, and in many ways, the intensive involvement with children is good for them, but it can cross a line very easily.
easily. And I think it does cross that line uh, for parents um, who become what they call helicopter parents. Um, and I think, though, that there are structural reasons for that, that the new economic inequality, the new job insecurity, and the tremendous uh, you know, um, actual lack of mobility in America compared to many other countries. That's one of the, another big myth about America is that we have more social and economic mobility. I think this really scares parents, and this is why they have become so obsessed um, with following, monitoring, and, and screening, grooming their children. Right. Um, well, you talk about in your book as well about how um, – you know, this kind of nostalgia for the 1950s as the home being the foundation of our society kind of leaves, um, well, people that really believe in that ideal kind of isolates families from um, a feeling of being part of a larger society. It does, and this sense that the, the home is a refuge has a lot of different, it plays out not only through the 50s, but um, throughout American history. Um, and it's ironic because a lot of people today look at the you know number of working moms and think, oh my goodness, let's go back to the 50s where kids were more protected within the home mm-hmm. uh, and had more time with their parents. But actually, very careful time diary studies of uh, several sociologists show us that uh, parents today are spending much more time with their kids than they did at the height of the male breadwinner family. And they don't park them in front of the TV or let them go out and play uh, in ways that they could, by the way. I have to say, you know, when you if you mm-hmm. lived in the suburbs and everybody had moved to the suburbs at the same time and had kids the same age, it was a lot easier to just let your kids go out and play with other kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of time parents spend uh, with, with kids, that's actually gone up, not down. Uh, it's when women first started entering the workforce, uh, that time with kids, their time with kids did decrease a little. And during that era, when a wife took a job, a man did not increase his time at childcare. But since 1985, women have increased their childcare hours to the point where, though even though employed women spend a little less time than homemaker women with their kids, they spend more time than homemakers did uh, in the early 1960s, in the 50s and 60s. And today, when a woman takes a job, most men step up to the plate and show much more parental knowledge and much more parental involvement. They've tripled the amount of child care they've done in the last, they do in the last 10 years alone. Uh, no, sorry, 20 years alone. Uh, mm-hmm. So this kind of idea that the family used to be self-reliant. Now, what you said about that mythology about being self-reliant, cutting us off from other ties, that's that, that trend goes very long, far back in American history. We tend to romanticize marriage and the nuclear family more than most of our uh, European counterparts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partly because we have the mythology that we just talked about a little earlier, the mythology of laissez-faire individualism and that everybody can and should do it alone and that basically there should be no regulation other than that required to uh, keep crime down. Down, um, that we don't invest. Uh, whereas, you know, countries in Europe are much more inclined to invest in parks rather than tell parents, um, okay, save up enough money so you can buy a new home in a place where there are places where your kids can play. And to the extent I think that we have emphasized this sort of competitive capitalism 
everywhere else. The free markets run amok, uh, some would say, uh, in every other area of life. We have sort of stuffed all the altruism, all the sense of obligation, and um, and and um, mutual kind of regulation and control that it's spread more evenly in other countries. We've stuffed it into the family, um, mm. which can have antisocial effects. Uh, Naomi Gerstel and her colleagues, for example, studied um, married versus singles um, fairly recently, and they discovered that far from being the building blocks of the community, married couples are more cut off from the community than their mm-hmm. single counterparts. They're less likely to spend time giving practical aid to their parents, to kin and neighbors. They're less time, they spend less time socializing, except in very narrow circles when their kids are very young, you know, with the play dates. But mm-hmm. aside from that, um, Naomi describes uh, marriage as a greedy institution that sucks people away from their involvement elsewhere. Mm. And this wasn't always the case. No, back in colonial mm. days, um, the married couple was indeed the building block of the community. Uh, mm-hmm. Single people, bachelors and, and um, visitors were expected to be placed in the homes of married couples. Married couples organized the social life of the community. Um, men, men more than women, engaged in matchmaking. You know, uh, so. Mm-hmm. At that time, yes, it was a it was a distinct reversal. Uh, there has been a distinct reversal since um, the pre-modern era. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me of um, how you know, at least with most young people today, when somebody starts to date, like when you have a group of friends and someone starts to date someone, it's sort of expected that you're going to um, not hear from that person very much anymore. You know, it's like, well, now they're in a relationship, and this is sort of something, um, you know, especially when they get married. But even before that, there's a sense of, um, you know, well, that's that's sacred, and now they need to be alone. Yes, I think that's true, although I think that we are seeing young people experiment with alternatives as the age of marriage continues to rise and people understand that although the divorce rate has been falling for the past uh, 20 years, uh, divorce is still a, certainly a possibility. Um, I think that people, young people are beginning to understand the importance of developing social support networks beyond your immediate partner. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the reasons you have the hookup phenomenon that um, so, so shocks um, older people. And I'm old <laughs> enough that I don't totally understand it, but looking at it as a historian, I think, you know, these young people are trying to come to terms with a world where they are not, where they're obviously, um, they're not going to marry until their late 20s, even into their 30s. They've obviously hit their sexual maturity much younger than that. Um, But they need to develop friendships with the opposite sex, not just an ongoing partnership that's going to end in marriage. And Mm -hmm. whatever it's problems, I see this kind of hanging out and then occasionally hooking up as part of an attempt to negotiate a completely new um, uh, sequence of getting involved in sex, of developing friends, and eventually moving on to a uh, dyadic relationship. Hmm, interesting. Um, yeah, you talk about the thing that you mentioned before about um, how our 
you know, modern society, our feelings of altruism, everything is sort of stuffed into the family as if that were supposed to be the emotional um, center of our, you know, existence. Um, and you, in your book, you kind of talk a little bit about um, how this relates to politicians and our view of um, their personal versus their, their public lives. Could you talk a little bit about that? You mentioned the, the Clinton um, sex scandal and... Well, I think that um, a couple of things are going on here. Uh, one is, of course, that we just have a news media that prefers to focus on personal scandals because those don't require any kind of analysis. Uh, so they're not going to piss off either side. <laughs> so if you have to, if you have to analyze, you know, where this economic corruption came from or who uh, lied to what lobbyists, you begin to really um, stir the pot in terms of mm-hmm. invested interest. Um, but the other side of it, I think, comes in, and since I wrote The Way We Never Were, I also did a big history of marriage. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of myths connected to marriage, too, that we used to do marriage better and people used to respect their marriage uh, vows more than they do today. And, of course, that's not true at all. Actually, there was, um, especially for men, much more tolerance of extramarital affairs. So I think that another thing that's happening is that at the same time as uh, relationships are harder to sustain over the long run, uh, we have much higher expectations of them and much fairer expectations of them. So I think there's also a certain amount of fascination with, well, how do you handle it when your spouse behaves this way? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a very complex uh, issue. Um, Yeah. Um, What what are some of the myths about African-American families that you discuss in your book? Well, of course, um, there's the continuing myth that that, uh, black families are um, you know, the whole Moynihan myth that they're matriarchal, that they're disorganized, they're dysfunctional. Uh, when we look back in history, uh, we find, of course, tremendous strengths of black families, including not only, you know, a real commitment to kin, but also uh, a real commitment to uh, fictive kin, which you basically had to have during slavery. And in many, um, you know, populations that have experienced uh, economic hardship and discrimination, uh, it's really important to develop social uh, networks beyond the nuclear family. So in many ways, um, I think what people are are misinterpreting as a lack of family ties is a more extended kin orientation uh, traditionally among African-American families above a conjugal orientation, you know, an orientation just toward your particular spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my book, I try to talk about some of the myths about, uh, you know, black matriarchy, about uh, disorganized black families, and point out their tremendous um, history um, and some of the real strengths and resilience. Uh, there are real problems uh, in the black community, uh, in the in the impoverished part of the black community. Since since that book first came out, you've seen a real interesting and increased uh, bifurcation of class within the African-American community. So that, And I think that it's affected uh, racial 
feelings among whites in a particular way, so that in one sense you have almost a colorblind racism that uh, mm-hmm. says, you know, Obama is okay because he speaks like a white middle class uh, educated guy, but mm-hmm. these guys who hang out on corners and, and use different, um, you know, jargon, um, they're the ones we worry about. So it, this, you know, this this race thing is a continually evolving thing. As late as 1970, race and gender trumped class and education in determining mm-hmm. wages, for example. 1970, a white female college graduate or a black uh, college graduate earned less than the average white male high school graduate. Um, today, um, education and class outweigh race and gender. Um, but race uh, and gender, both, but particularly race, have these accumulated disadvantages that makes many African Americans give them less access to good schooling, less access to the sorts of things that can be translated now much more than than in the past into success, individual success in our society. So we're still struggling with those things as well. One of the things I um, found out, did a lot of research on more recently when I was studying marriages in the mm-hmm. early 1960s, is that the whole concept, there's this myth, that the conservative myth we've been talking about, about black yeah. family disorganization and crime and all of that, that I tried to counter in, in the book, The Way We Never Were. But there is a, a, a myth among liberals, too, that somehow mm-hmm. feminism is irrelevant uh, to African Americans and that they have not been supportive of feminism. In fact, the um, even when um, blacks, black women did not have to work outside the home, Bart Landry has found that in the 1950s, upper middle mar- women, mar- white women married to upper middle class white men were the least likely to, to work outside the home. But black women uh, married to upper middle class men were the most likely to work outside the home. And they often did so because they wanted to. It was African American leaders, not feminist leaders, who first coined the idea of being co-providers and having a tripart identity of um, wife and mother community activist and uh, breadwinner for the family. So I think that's another very important strength of African-American communities and African-American history. It did not produce matriarchy. It it, uh, produced more equality. Um, You know, I mean, obviously, um, there are gender differences and and inequality in the black community as well, but they have a much longer tradition of co-providing than white Americans do. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, you also talked about how um, part of our, you know, of our feelings of nostalgia come from the fact that we we do get a distorted picture, not just of what happened in the past, but of what's happening now. Um, you talk about how the media kind of covers, um, you know, covers things more sensationally, and we believe, for example, that you know the crime rates have gone up when they've actually gone down. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, you know, there's this tendency among the media to just throw factoids, you know, or or to catch factoids. Actually, that might be a better way to think about it because there are all of these um, these ideologically informed think tanks um, that often don't even have family researchers on their staff who cherry pick um, evidence to to 
increase their idea of nostalgia, that families are in decline, that we have to roll back whatever their particular issue is. We have to roll back same-sex marriage. We have to, uh, you know, reinstitutionalize divorce, make divorce harder to get. We've got to reinstitutionalize illegitimacy so that people don't have kids out of wedlock. And they're always throwing out these facts to show you, to, to prove how the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Certainly mm-hmm. we face many new problems, but what's fascinating and gets overlooked and um, is that in many of the problems that we had in the 80s, um, actually were among teenagers who had been born into male breadwinner families in the 50s. Right. And one of the things we've seen, especially um, since the beginning of the 90s, is an incredible decline. Um, I have an intern working with me at the Council on Contemporary Families now. Uh, we'll, we'll be able, able to put out a graph in the next couple of weeks showing that there's been almost a 75% decline in uh, self-reported sexual victimization rates uh, of women. There's been a huge decline in teen pregnancy. There's been uh, rates of teen violence are uh, and murder are as low as they were in 1966. So although um, we have many issues uh, facing us in America, and I'm not going not about to say, okay, everything is going great. I think there are serious family and social issues. Mm-hmm. The idea that somehow these are all caused by the changes, by the increased family diversity and the increased options uh, mm-hmm. to live outside a lifelong uh, early marriage uh, nuclear family um, mm-hmm. just doesn't hold water. Right. Yeah, you said that um, a lot of people, when they, you know, see some of the problems today or the alleged problems that they they hear on the media, uh, they blame feminism for it, as if feminism caused these things. But you argue that um, there haven't been enough changes, and that is why many women are unhappy today. Well, you know, again, let me let me refer to it to another to some other research I did for another book on the feminine mystique, and um, uh, which was Betty Friedan wrote in 1963, and which just had a tremendous effect on many many women. Well, you go back to 1963. You know, this is you know after the 1950s, and you look at what the law and the social practices were like for um, women. Um, there were still sex segregated want ads, help wanted female, help wanted male. It was perfectly legal to pay women less for the same job than men and to exclude them from many desirable jobs. Mm-hmm. As for the idea, for example, that homemakers were better off then, that is absurd. There were only eight states where a homemaker had any claim at all upon the income that her husband earned during the marriage uh, in the case of a divorce. And even in those eight community property states, the man had um, the ability to um, decide what would be done with the community property and even in most of them to alienate it without her consent. That didn't end until 1974 when a Louisiana man who was in jail for molesting his daughter sold his family home to pay for his defense and at that point the Louisiana oh state court said, no, maybe this is not something we should allow. Um, yeah. Back in those days there was no such thing as marital rape. As I've said, domestic violence was not taken seriously. In fact, the, one of the few scientific studies I could find that came out in 1964 and described, actually did case studies of domestic violence, um, actually said that in many cases, it, it, despite you know its problems, it did establish a more or less satisfactory equilibrium in families that had been disrupted by the female's over-assertion, and so she was happier and her husband was happier when he beat her. So. 
this nice. is sort of the sort of thing that that prevailed then. Feminism has freed women from this. It's also led to an increase, uh, to a decrease in child poverty. Um, it's allowed men and women to escape abusive uh, marriages. And by the way, every you know a lot of people complain about divorce, and divorce has some serious problems, but it also is sometimes the solution to even more serious problems. Uh, in every state that adopted no-fault divorce, and they adopted it at different times, so um, two economists had the chance to actually um, evaluate what happened. Each of those states in the following five years, yes, did see a surge in divorce. It also saw an 8 to 13% decline in wives' suicide rates and a 30% decline in domestic violence. And of course, since that time, actually, divorce rates have been going down, and they've been going down the most among educated couples who subscribe to more tradition, to more unconventional family values, more egalitarian uh, male-female relations. That's been good for men too. That men no longer have to be the only providers. And um, you know, many of the men that I interviewed when I was interviewing women and men who read the feminine mystique told me that the problems for women with the feminine, with the mystiques about gender roles, kicked in when women were got were told when they turned about 24 or 25, they'd been told you will be totally happy for the rest of your life as soon as you find a good provider and a couple of kids. <laughs> and when they weren't, they could look around and at first they internalized it, thought something was wrong with them. But once feminism came along, they could. Actually Actually, they still had time to change their life course. Several men I interviewed said, you know, for me, I had been told that all my happiness would come when I got my gold watch in my retirement. As long as I was a good provider all these years, the rest of my life would be just golden. And he mm-hmm. said, you know, I would, they said I would come home and I was stranger to my wife and children. But it was too late for me to change the course of my life. So feminism isn't good for men as well as women. Wow. Yeah. What do you think is behind the kind of um, something that tends to be very common in my generation um, of women saying, trying to sort of believing or uh, taking advantage of the things that feminism has, you know, offered us and that women of um, other generations have fought for us to have and yet um, also trying to distance oneself from feminism? Because I hear that a lot of um, that I'm not a feminist, but you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Where do you think that comes from? Well, again, I think it's complicated. Part of it is uh, the relentless media drama and and, uh, social conservative drama that feminists are anti-men, they're anti-family. Then there is also the impression that feminists are anti-sex. And and that's a complicated thing, too, because I do think that um, when women of my age and generation were just beginning to enter the workforce, we really had to um, be very, very careful not to do anything. I mean, sexual harassment wasn't even illegal back in the 19, early 1970s and, and late 60s. And so you had to be very careful how you dressed, how you appeared. Women today feel more free, and some of them, I think, take the, you know, believe that we were prudish because of the way we behaved. On the other mm-hmm. hand, um, so, so that part of it I can understand. On the other hand, I do think that young women have often been sucked into a sort of new media hype, a new kind of feminine mystique that I call the haughty mystique, that you're supposed to display your sexuality at all times. Mm-hmm. But another reason, so so I think there are, are good and bad reasons that, that young women <clears throat> are 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 worried about feminism from the point of view of sexuality. Another reason that people, though I think, don't call themselves feminists, um, 
is that things are a little more complex now in terms of class. What we're, you know, in a sense, in the 60s, we picked the low-hanging fruit when we um, we went up against the laws that blatantly discriminated against women. Now you're seeing the class differences among women come to the fore, and I think that some that there's some confusion about what feminism really means. You have Sarah Palin and people um, mm-hmm. calling the Susan B. Anthony. You know, uh, we're feminists because we oppose abortion and contraception rights. Uh, you have the power feminists who really basically want um, there to be, uh, you know, they want to crack the glass ceiling, and they don't pay much attention to the basement floor where many working-class men are stuck doing the dirty work among the boiler rooms. So there's a lot of reasons, I think, that people, uh, for good and bad, that people are confused about what feminism is. And I, I have to say, since I'm speaking to a, a sociologist, <laughs> that that some of the academic feminists with mm-hmm. their kind of jargon, um, it's supposedly, you know, the sort of postmodern jargon is supposedly about um, highlighting sex and race and gender and class. But in fact, it cuts us off from talking to real people where they really are. So all of these things come into play. Part of it is the right-wing myths about feminism. Part of it is the ambivalence of young women who find that um, that that equality doesn't give them equality in legal terms. Still has all sorts of issues um, that are uh, attached to it and that are very difficult to negotiate it. And part of it is the increasing salience of class in our society that divides women as well as men. Hmm. So um, what you said in terms of like um, of sociologists kind of making the discourse very um, sort of academic or non-accessible? Well, you know, we all do it. Historians do it, too. Yeah. And I work, uh, but I'll just tell you, for example, in a public talk, I would never use the word discourse. It's not something that most mm-hmm. class audiences, not a word they use. Mm, good um, point. And that's my, my, one of my passions. Uh, I work with a group called the Council on Contemporary Families, and we have many sociologists. Uh, Frank Furstenberg was one of the founding members, Constance Ahrens, Barbara Rissman at UIC is still our executive officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of our passions is to get other sociologists and historians and academics to translate their research into plain English so mm. that people can understand to go public. Um, and we spend a lot of time. Um, in fact, if you're interested, you should go to the Contemporary Families website. We get <laughs> a lot of time taking new research and putting it into words uh, that the press can understand and getting those out. So mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in that. If we're fortunate enough to be paid, um, sometimes underpaid perhaps, but still to be paid to do this kind of research, we should be taking it public. We should not be standing back and letting people who are not trained in research but have an ideological agenda throw mm-hmm. these little factoids to get back to our previous uh, question and answer uh, at the media and have the media tell us, oh, my goodness, you know, divorce is ruining America or whatever it is. We should be sharing right. our research. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, sometimes I think when you're uh, you're kind of, you know, in a field for a while, you, you think that is regular language and you don't realize that it isn't exactly. <laughs> because you're, you're, you're just in there. Um, and it seems like a lot of these myths are perpetuated because people do take things for granted. And when um, we hear things, you know, from the media, we just kind of 
they just become embedded in our in our minds. Um, do you see any hope for that changing? Because outside of, um, you know, I mean, where people are talking about books and things like that, but a lot of people don't access those you know, those sites or these interviews or most people just watch the, the regular mainstream media. Um, do you see hope for that changing anytime soon? Well, since I wrote this this particular book we've been talking about, The Way We Never Were, um, I've seen progress in some area and setbacks in another. Um, mm-hmm. I think I see, I've seen real hope in terms of understanding the, the public's ability to uh, understand and accept family diversity. Um, people are much more... Um, it's, in the last 15 or 20 years, uh, people have been have raised their standards about marriage, but simultaneously been more understanding of why people leave a marriage that does not uh, work well, or why a woman uh, what 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 it is to cohabit outside of marriage that that's not necessary. I think we've made real progress in getting people uh, at a at a gut level to to understand the difference between cause and correlations. That just because mm-hmm. more single parent families uh, live in poverty, that that might be a result of poverty, not necessarily the cause of poverty, or that some more mm-hmm. complex interaction may be occurring. I've seen tremendous progress in that. You see it perhaps the most in the rapid change in acceptance of same-sex marriage. Uh, for the first time last year, a plurality of Americans, more of them supported same-sex marriage than opposed it. And so I think we're seeing growing acceptance of diversity, growing tolerance. At the same time, where I have not seen improvement and maybe even backtracking is in the understanding of a myth we talked about earlier in the conversation, the myth of self-reliance. Mm-hmm. Um, that people have looked at the the ways that the state can go wrong when it is overly influenced by private enterprise, by lobbyists who go in and deform uh, the laws and the taxation systems and the regulation and the way uh, things are carried out. And they've been translating that with great, you know, tremendous encouragement from Tea Party types into the idea that the state can't solve anything mm-hmm. uh, under any conditions and that we should just back off and, and let uh, the free enterprise market um, reign. Um, so I've actually seen um, seen real regression in that uh, part of the American dialogue. So it's interesting. There's mm-hmm. been a big progress in our ability to discuss family life more rationally, less moralistically, um, but um, been some real setbacks in our ability to understand the pros and cons of state intervention and when it is necessary. Right. Okay. Well, we've taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you. It was a fun conversation. You You have just listened to an interview with author Stephanie Koontz on her book, The Way We Never Were, American Families and the Nostalgia Trap. This is Annie Sebukaya with New Books in Sociology. Thank you for being with us today.